Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 105. I've mentioned a few times that Psalms 104 to 106 are generally regarded as a poetic recapitulation of the Pentateuch, moving from Genesis through Deuteronomy. Psalm 103 functioned as a sort of prequel. Psalm 104 covered the theme of creation, and Psalm 105 focuses in on Israel's experiences in Egypt and God's gracious intervention on their behalf. So at the risk of oversimplification, we might say that Psalm 104 is Genesis in poetic form. Psalm 105, then, is Exodus in poetic form. Again, reminding us that the Bible presents truths in a variety of ways. Thanks be to God. Now, in terms of who wrote this psalm, there's actually a fair bit of debate about that, and with good reason. It seems fairly certain that David wrote at least the first 15 verses— If you have your Bible open to Psalm 105, look at the first 15 verses there while I read to you from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 8 to 22. This is the song that David wrote to celebrate the bringing of the ark into Jerusalem. So listen, David says, or David sings, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Closed quote. All right, well, if you were following along, then you noticed that those words in 1 Chronicles 16, 18 to 22 correspond pretty much exactly to the first 15 verses of this psalm. So, as I said, on that basis, many commentators would argue that David wrote the whole thing. David wrote all of Psalm 105. And then a portion of it, a representative sample, was recorded in 1 Chronicles 16. Others, though, argue that Psalm 105 was written in the latter stages of the exile. Remember, it's part of a collection that runs from Psalm 103 through to Psalm 106, all of which seem to be intending to build up faith in the exilic community in hopes of a future return to and restoration of Jerusalem. So many scholars believe that an exilic priest or Levite took 
up the song of David recorded in 1 Chronicles 16 and reworked and expanded it to give us Psalm 105. And that would be totally legitimate. The great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is actually a reworking of Psalm 46. So this isn't plagiarism. This is respect and appropriate liturgical influence. So it could be that. And to be honest with you, I think it is that. But at the end of the day, we can't say for sure. And it probably doesn't matter a great deal. The point being made is true, no matter when or where it is being made. And that point is that God is deserving of our gratitude and praise. No matter where you are looking from or from inside what particular challenges, God has shown himself to be faithful in the past. God has proven to us who he is. And we owe him our trust, delight, and allegiance. From every point forward on the biblical timeline after the Exodus, the Old Testament church could look back on those great events and find all the proof they needed to be sure that God knew them, God saw them, God loved them, and God had plans for them. And that gave them every good reason to have hope and optimism for the future. The word biblical commentary says here, time could not deaden these proofs, for they had a once-for-all significance, closed quote. And of course, much the same could be said concerning the faith and worship of the New Testament church. Just as the Israelites looked back upon the Exodus, so we look back upon the cross. And whether we're looking back from the 16th century or the 21st century, or should the Lord tarry, from the 25th century, time will not deaden these proofs. For they too have a once-for-all significance, thanks be to God. Now, in terms of structure here, there's a call to worship in verses 1 to 6, a reflection on the Lord's character and promises in verses 7 to 11, an extensive recollection of his redeeming work in verses 12 to 45a, concluding with an explicit exhortation to praise. Leslie Allen characterizes the psalm as an expanded hymn of the imperatival type, close quote. Imperatival just means command or encouragement. So in street-level English, the whole hymn is about encouraging people to remember and praise the Lord. He calls on them to do it. He reminds them of why they should do it. He rehearses all that God has done in the past to deserve it. And then he ends by saying, now let's just go ahead and do it. Let's all come together now and praise the Lord. Sounds good to me. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. So as mentioned, this is a hymn filled with imperatives and commands. Give thanks. Call upon the name of the Lord. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Remember his works, deeds, and judgments, etc. 
Now, these commands aren't just for the Old Testament church. They're for the New Testament church as well. The commands in this opening section are targeted specifically at the offspring of Abraham. And according to the Apostle Paul, if you are in Christ, then that's you. In Galatians 3.29, he says that very thing. He says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, close quote. So these commands, Christian brother or sister, are for you. You need to give thanks. You need to praise him. Now, those are not two different things. Those are actually just one thing described in two different ways. Willem van Gemmeren says here, his perfections and mighty acts are so closely interrelated that no separation can be made between praise and thanksgiving, close quote. So thanking him is praising him. To, to thank him is to appreciate his character as revealed in his saving actions. So they are all aspects of the same commended response. And of course, remembering is a part of that too. Matthew Henry says something very interesting here. He says, we are here taught in praising God to look a great way back and to give him the glory of what he did for his church in former ages, especially when it was in the founding and forming, which those in its latter ages enjoy the benefit of and therefore should give thanks for, closed quote. Joy for the Christian is often a matter of looking a great way back, and I would add, a great way forward. In this world, in, in this moment, we will often have tribulation. We'll often have sorrow and pain, but looking back, we see his mercy, and looking forward, we see his glory. Thanks be to God. So we want to remember these things. We want to thank him for these things. We want to sing about these things. And according to verse 4, we want to seek the Lord, seek his presence continually. Now, what does that mean? J. Alec Machir is helpful here. He says that to seek the Lord is not looking for something that has been lost, but frequenting where he is known to be found, closed quote. See, God's not hiding he is where he is, and he can be found where he delights to be found, in worship, in remembering his mercy, in singing and speaking his praises. So if you feel like you haven't been experiencing the presence of God recently, it isn't that God has gone missing. It, it might be that you have gone missing. Have you been present when the deeds of the Lord are being recounted? Have you been present when his word is being read and explained, have you been present when his praises are being sung by his people? That's, that's where he is. That is where you should seek him. Verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. In verses 7 to 11, we have a reflection on the Lord's character and promises. He is Yahweh. He works publicly so everything about him can be known. He is, we might say today, an open book. His great work of redemption in the Old Testament took place in the heart of the world's great superpower. He did his works in Egypt. Everyone knew about it. 
And we see that in the conquest narrative when the Israelites come up on Jericho and we're told that everyone had heard about what had happened down in Egypt. Rahab the prostitute knew all about it. That's why she gave shelter to the Israelite spies. The Apostle Paul says the same thing about the great redemptive work of God in the New Testament, which happened in the heart of the world's superpower of Rome. He says, while on trial before a Roman procurator and a Jewish king in Acts 26, he says, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner, close quote. See that? God doesn't hide his redeeming work. He does his work. He performs his actions in the most public way possible. He is transparent. He is faithful. He makes a promise. He keeps that promise. Praise the Lord. Now, in verses 12 to 45, we have an extensive recollection of his great redeeming works on behalf of Israel. Verse 12. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. So here he begins with the story of the patriarchs, which, interestingly enough, he refers to as prophets. The Expositor's Bible Commentary takes note of that detail, saying, Though the term prophet is only loosely used of Abraham as God's prophet, see, for example, Genesis 20, verse 7, the psalmist generalizes it to apply to all three patriarchs, closed quote. I think that's probably helpful for us to see. There is a specific use of the word prophet in the Old Testament, and then there is a general use. Now, by the way, we see the same thing in the New Testament with respect to the word apostle. There are specific apostles those authorized by Jesus to represent him and to flesh out his teaching. And then there are general apostles. The word is used to describe church delegates in 2 Corinthians 8.23. The point is that there is a sense, a general sense, in which all of God's people are prophets, in that God speaks to them in particular ways. They are in relationship with the God who speaks. And so in that sense, they are prophets. Though, obviously, there's an office and a set of expectations that go along with that office in the Old Testament. Here, though, we just want to see that God has been watching over his people and guiding them through this dangerous world right from the beginning. Verse 16, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Now, remember, this whole section from verse 12 through to verse 45 is recalling the great redeeming works of God on behalf of his people. And, and so we're interested in some of the things that are mentioned here. Verse 16, for example, talks about a great famine. George Horn, in his commentary, says here, Famine is here finally represented as a servant, ready to come and go at the call and command of God, 
For calamities, whether public or private, are the messengers of divine justice, closed quote. Are you hearing that? God uses global catastrophes, disruptive global events. God uses personal catastrophes, disruptive personal events to save and sanctify his people. I think we probably all need to tuck that truth away somewhere for future reference. When a bad thing happens, it isn't that the world is spinning out of control. On the contrary, it means that God has started to move and to shake and to work his purposes. Disasters, trials, and tribulations are tools on God's providential tool belt. Thomas Scott says here, we greatly mistake if we do not rank afflictions among our mercies, close quote. Hard things are often the very things that God uses to save and ultimately serve his people. Even injustice can be used by God to bring about good and benevolent purposes. In verse 17, the psalm reflects on the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. But that wicked event, that great injustice, actually ended up being used by God to bring about salvation and blessing for a great many people. Tim Keller says here, Joseph was, and he puts this in quotation marks, sent before the people in Egypt to save them. But see how he saved them, again in quotation marks, as a slave. If Joseph hadn't been betrayed, sold, and imprisoned for years, he never would have escaped his own deadly character flaws, never would have been able to redeem his own family from its generation's deep sins, nor would he have been able to save thousands of people from famine, closed quote. It is amazing to think of all the different things that God uses to save, serve, strengthen, and sanctify his people. The process is often hard, but the outcome is inevitably glorious. Now, how you feel about these things often depends on your perspective. The psalmist here is recalling these events in the distant past precisely because they were hard events that eventually worked out for their good and God's glory. And he's saying to the people, do you have faith to believe that this hard event, this exile event, could also work out in the end for God's glory and our everlasting good? That's the quiet question we can see hiding behind this careful arrangement. Verse 23, Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Just quickly, notice again God's sovereignty and providence. The Lord made the people of Israel multiply. And then, when it was time for them to leave, the Lord turned the hearts of the Egyptians against them. God is everywhere in this story. Matthew Henry says here, It was God that turned the hearts of the Egyptians against them, for every creature is that to us that he makes it to be, a friend or an enemy. Closed quote. Henry goes on to say, Though God is not the author of the sins of men, yet he serves his own purposes by them. Closed quote. What a helpful distinction. Tim Keller says something here by way of personal application of these great truths. He says, 
Here are two crucial biblical truths that must be held together. Everything we do is part of God's plan. Yet, we are never coerced and are completely responsible for our actions. Without the first truth, we are stressed by believing it's all up to us how our lives go. Without the second truth, we will think our choices don't really matter. Believe this doctrine and escape both complacency and anxiety. Closed quote. Amen to that. Verse 26, he sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Now, let's just notice here that in this poetic treatment of the Exodus, the author only mentions eight of the ten plagues, and the plagues that he mentions are given out of order. And that's just a reminder that the poetic genre differs from the historic genre, and that ought not to cause us any alarm whatsoever as Bible readers. The point here is that the Lord used these great events to show his power, to destroy their idols, and to set his people free. Thanks be to God. Verse 37. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. You see that? God doesn't just save. He, he equips, he resources, he empowers, and he nourishes. He gives us what we need at every stage of the journey. God is a faithful God. He is a generous God. He is a promise-keeping God. He did everything he needed to do. He did everything he said he would do to make them the people they were created and intended to be. Notice that. Notice the that at the start of verse 45. God saved them and resourced them and nurtured them so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Seeing that, I think, as a Bible reader, makes all the difference in the world. Brothers and sisters, we aren't saved by obedience. It's really important that we understand that. We aren't saved by obedience. Rather, and very important for us to understand, rather, we are saved for obedience. Do you see that? 
We see the same thing everywhere in the Bible. We see that in the New Testament. This is how the Apostle Paul ended his letter to the church in Rome, that great gospel letter. He said, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Did you hear that? <laughs> Paul says the, the whole reason I've been running around preaching the gospel and proclaiming the personal work of Jesus Christ is to bring about the obedience of faith. God saves you from something and God makes you into something. He sets you free so that you can become the person you were originally created and intended to be. The Apostle Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 2.24. He said, he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So, obedience is a fruit of redemption and it is a response to redemption. Willem van Gemmeren makes that point exactly. He says, keeping the precepts of the Lord is therefore an expression of joyous gratitude for all the benefits the Lord has provided for his people, closed quote. What a perfect closing challenge. What an appropriate reminder. The psalmist is saying here, remember what God did the last time. He put us through the ringer. Yes, but not to kill us. He did that to save us and to sanctify us. And he did that to position us to live the life we were created and intended to live. He, he did hard things for great and glorious reasons. He did that in the past. And I believe he's doing that again through these present challenges. So lean in, hold fast, let the exile do its work. Let the discipline produce maturity, gratitude, and obedience as it has been designed and ordained to do for his glory and for our everlasting good. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. 
May God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 